You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. But right now, it's time for my favorite guy on the uh, program with us every week. I'll tell you what, this man is absolutely interesting. Dr. History, brought to you by Minicasha Sales. Old Zach and the crew at 1321 East Main Street in Burley, right across from the airport. They've got everything for you at Minicasha Sales. We'll tell you more about that in just a few minutes. But right now, here is a gentleman that's going to tell you we are being listened to by how many countries? 110. 110. And how many hits on the program? Close to 400,000. 400,000? Can you imagine people doing that? (laughs) For you and me. I know. It's amazing. Wow. Well, uh, how you been? Good, good. Good. What are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to continue on with a guy named Daniel Potts. I remember him. Yes. Now, he was one of the few guys that knew how to read and write, and that's why his stories uh, have a little more credibility than some of the others. Uh So so anyway, so here we are. He's uh, on an expedition out here west, uh, trapping and one thing or another, and and he quotes, he says, We crossed Snake River, or South Fork of Columbia, at the forks of Henry and Lewis's Fork, north of Idaho Falls, Idaho. So you know where that is. Right. At this place, we was daily harassed by the Blackfeet. Now, Daniel Potts loved unexplored country about as much as he disliked these Indians. Uh, but you know the bad relations with the Blackfeet stem from an incident with Lewis and Clark clear back in 1806. And that's when a band of Blackfeet ran into the Americans. They attempted to rob them. The Americans responded with fight. And in the fray that followed, two Indians were killed. And their horses and weapons were taken by the whites. So now it's even 20 years later. But uh, the Blackfeet were still not uh, forgetting about Got this. Got a dumb question for you. Okay. But you would have the answer. Okay. How did trappers and early settlers define and discern which Indian tribe was which? That's a good question, <laughs> and I don't know. <laughs> gotcha. You got me, but but uh, actually the Blackfeet, uh, a lot of times they called any raiding party Blackfeet, no matter really? what tribe. Really? Yeah, and actually there were three tribes of Blackfeet. There's the Pigeon, the Blood, and the Siksika. And they were politically independent, but they spoke the same language. They married each other and fought together. So they're kind of three tribes, but all called Blackfeet. So, mm. but skirmishes with these Indians made pretty good tales to tell around the uh, around the campfire. One of which was uh, uh, John Coulter and how he. Uh, uh, had to uh, run five miles for his life, and oh, yeah. I've told I've told you that story. But oh yeah, many times. Anyway, so anyway, Daniel and his companions had edged over the rim of the Great Basin into the Snake River Valley, right down here by us, and it was the largest valley in the Rocky Mountains. And of course, we know it strung along the Snake River from the Tetons in Wyoming to modern-day Boise, Idaho. Mm-hmm. And the only trees, actually, at that time, was just along the river. The rest was sagebrush, really, and was taller than a horse. 
So, but you know, when they got north of Idaho Falls, the men looked up to the east, and there they saw the the Tetons, and uh, you know, mountains, of course, were landmarks. So Daniel kept track of them in his diary, and the flow of the rivers was even more important. So he carefully talked to other men. He formed his own opinions, and from Jackson's Hole, they continued north to the origin of the Snake River, then on up over the Continental Divide. So. Uh, they were high mountains, and the air was clean, the sky was blue, and from the Continental Divide, he could see Yellowstone Lake. Mm-hmm. And he's the first one to actually describe Yellowstone. Here's what he said. Okay. He said, the Yellowstone River has a large, fresh water lake near its head on the very top of the mountain, which is as clear as crystal. But there was more to see than the lake. Something was happening on the southwest shores, and it looked like smoke. Mm. So they headed in that direction. It was steam, as we know. It was a fast food pizza place. <laughs> it was. And as he tells it, he says, on the south borders of this lake is a number of hot and boiling springs, oh, really? some of water, others of most beautiful fine clay, resembles that of a mush pot, and throws its particles to the immense height of from 20 to 30 feet in height. Really? So, and of course, you've been up there, and I have, uh, so if you've ever witnessed a geyser blast of steam, you know that that it was pretty astonishing. Oh, my, yeah. So this written statement from Potts is the earliest eyewitness report of the largest thermal area in the world. And later, park uh, officials would say that there's more than 10,000 hot water features in Yellowstone, which is more than anywhere in the rest of the world. What year was this, by the way? 1822, I believe. 1822. Right in the earlier okay. day. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, now, others had already described the Tetons, but this statement from Daniel Potts is the first known description of the Yellowstone Park area. And here it says it happened in 1826. Well, Daniel went to the mountains for adventure and to seek his fortune, and in five years he'd only achieved the first, <laughs> and the proceeds from 1826 were pretty discouraging. For one thing, uh, Trapper's most valuable asset was his horse, and he'd lost three of them. Oh, boy. Um, the challenge to make money came from white men trading merchandise that cost too much. Now, a question there. If they did lose their horse, I was wondering about this in the movie Jeremiah Johnson. If they did lose their horse and there was nothing but uh, renegade, hateful Indians there in the hills, how'd they get their horses? That's a good question. I mean, I, I'm assuming that maybe they traded with some of the friendly tribes. I don't maybe, know. Or ran across another trapper that had maybe a couple extra pack horses. Yeah. So... Anyway, it was uh, the thing that was bad about this whole trapping thing is the prospect of making money wasn't so good because they had to pay the price of the goods being brought out and trade their furs for not very much. So there was a lot of money uh, to, to be made in the mountains, but not from trapping. The money was in trading. That was a fly, by the way. <laughs> I tried to blow him out of the way. It didn't work. <laughs> But Daniel Potts had learned the game, too. The secret was you made money not by trapping the beaver, but by trapping the trappers. Ah. So the real profit was in exchanging highly marked up trade goods for beaver skins, then packing the skins back to St. Louis and selling them with a good markup. Let me interrupt right there. Okay. Perfect place. And tell everybody about Zach and the crew at Minicasha Sales. What a nice guy. What a super family. Minicasha Sales, 1321 East Main Street in Burley. I mean, they've got all your lumber 
lumber packages. Maybe you're going to do a little fix-up on the inside of your house before Aunt Martha and Uncle Fred and Grandma and Grandpa, everybody comes for Thanksgiving or Christmas. My goodness sakes. And upgrade your windows. They've got the western windows. Keep your heating bills down. Oh, my goodness. They've got it all. The Tartar Farm and Ranch gates and panels. Everything at Minicash Sales. Such nice people. Stop in. You'll see what I mean. 1321 East Main Street in Burley, right across from the airport. The number to call, 878-2091-MINICASHA SALES. And now, along with our friendly fly here in the studio, back to Dr. History. There's only one in here, and he's circling me. one guy, and he's messing everything up. (laughs) So anyway, Daniel was flirting with the idea of being a trader himself. Uh, There were too many middlemen between him and the market. And he had been doing the hard work, but the traders were calling the shots. I mean, they were setting the prices on the merchandise and the furs. So he started thinking about this. But anyway, Daniel Potts tells us that there were 100 men... Uh, we're going to go back a ways, back to 1822. Okay. Okay, uh, there were 100 men on his boat when they left St. Louis on April 3rd, and it was commanded by a Major Henry. Which which river did they float they down on? They were coming up the Missouri. Missouri. Yeah. Okay. So uh, it, it was commanded by him, and on May 8th, they launched his second boat, captain, captained by a Daniel Moore. Well, this was not a good decision because it hit a snag, swept $10,000 worth of trade goods into the river. Oh. Gone. That's when 10000 was a lot. That's a lot of money. That's yeah. like maybe a hundred grand a day. At least. At yeah. least, yeah. But these keel boats were about sixty five feet long, about fifteen feet wide, and they were especially designed for travel on this river. Wow. It had a flat bottom and a capacity of twenty five tons. Really? So they were quite the carriers, but uh, in design, uh, it was only one uh, step really up from a raft, basically. Um, but there were three ways to get up the river. First, you had the oars, and in slow, deep water, that worked. Yeah. When the water was shallow, more power was required, so they worked poles along the river right, uh, and pushed right. the boat astray. Mm-hmm. And when it got bad, when it got bad, they tied a long rope to the mast, and then the boatman got out, grabbed the rope, and started pulling this 25-ton boat up the river over rocks, through mud. How many guys were on the boat? Well, they had quite a few. There's like about 100 guys on this whole thing okay. uh, heading up the river. So the pulling displacement was not too bad. Not too bad, but still not okay. great. But All right. So everyone on board shared the bone-bending work except the hunters who went along looking for meat, and Daniel Potts uh, was one of those. So he got to kind of... Kind of the cushy job, so to speak. Okay. But the men doing this labor day after day needed a lot of food. And in 1822, the lower parts of the Missouri didn't have much in the way of game. And, and here's what he says in his own words. We were reduced to the sad necessity of eating anything we could catch as our provisions were exhausted and no game to be had. Being advanced 500 miles above the frontiers, we were glad to get a dog to eat, and I have seen some gather the skins of dogs up through the camp, singe and roast them, and eat heartily. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> now, they didn't have much sustenance besides protein meat, did right. they? Right. I mean, there's no vegetables. No vegetables, no, no Hershey's candy bars yeah. or anything so, like that. So, as you can imagine... At this point, a lot of them started deserting and heading back to the settlements for food, yeah, including pots. They were looking for Burger King. He left. He, uh, him and eight others, they left and oh headed back down river. And we're not, we're not sure what happened, but Daniel writes that he was separated from his eight companions and his gun about the same time. How did so that happen? He, he doesn't say. It must have been embarrassing or something because yeah. he doesn't say how that yeah. happened. Uh, but uh, here's what he says, uh, quote, <clears throat> 
Now, my dear friends, how must I have felt young birds, frogs, and snakes were acceptable food with me and not means of a fire. I, in the course of a few days, fortunately fell in with a party of Indians who treated me with great humanity and tarried with them four days and then fell in with a trader who conducted me within 350 miles of the frontiers. He being able to give me a little aid, I tarried but three days when I started with provisions consisting of only three quarters of a pound of buffalo fat and arrived at the frontiers in six days. So he had a little bit of buffalo fat for six days. You had to have in those days a cast iron constitution. Yeah, I mean, yeah, what you were going to eat. Can you imagine pulling into some place and saying, I'll just take a pound of buffalo fat? Yeah, just, you know, throw it on a bun. Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, Daniel and his eight companions, uh, like I said, they headed down the river and somehow he lost his knife, his gun, his companions. He didn't keep things very long, did he? No, but, you know, he met up with these Indians and then the trader and he made it down to Council Bluffs. Iowa. Really? So now along here, he uh, met up with General Ashley and rejoined the expedition for a good reason. They had food. Now, wait a minute. Coming back this way? Yeah. So he, he met up with General, not Henry. This is Ashley. I this see. is another group. Oh, okay. And they had food. So he decided, oh, okay, I'll, I'll join up with you guys. Hmm. So like I say, desertion was common on crews going up the Missouri. And if the leaders failed to provide adequate supplies and if game was not available, they started looking for things for survival. And uh, in fact, one group of 175 started up the river. Only 10 remained. 10? 165 deserted. Holy smokes. Maybe that was a clue for the other 10. Maybe this was not a good mission. Yeah. So anyway, so Jed Smith, Ashley, Daniel Potts, and his crew, they continued up the river and reached the mouth of the Yellowstone about the middle of October. Which is where exactly? Uh, Let's see. Uh, the mouth of Yellowstone is going to be up there in Montana, right? Yeah, I thought I'm so. I'm trying to remember exactly yeah, where that starts. Yeah. But they decided to winter at this Yellowstone post, and he would uh, uh, try to get them experience on how to trap and one thing or another. Okay. Um, now, Daniel's account, he, he, he says, Here the game being very scarce, the prospect was very discouraging, though after a short time the buffaloes flocked in great abundance. Uh-oh. Likewise, the mountain goats, the like I have never seen since. Now, uh, i got to tell you his uh, experience hunting buffalo. Oh, don't tell me. I bet he was <laughs> okay. a really not good shot. Uh, well, not only that. <laughs> okay, th- th- these are his words. He lost his gun again. <laughs> he says, during the winter, the buffaloes came into our camp, one of which I was induced to charge upon by our company without firearms, at first with a tomahawk only. You're kidding me. You got me. the picture? Yeah. He's chasing a buffalo with a tomahawk. This guy is not sane. No. After approaching very close, the bull prepared for action with the most dismal looks and sprang at me. Sprang. When within one leap of me, I let fly the tomahawk, Uh which caused him to retreat. Uh Uh-huh. Now, after returning to our cabin, I was induced to make the second attempt, armed with a tomahawk, knife, and a spear. But he still had to get close. Right. Accompanied by five or six others who were armed with guns. I see. Let those guys do it. Right. After traveling a short distance, we discovered the beast, and in a concealed manner, I approached him within 50 yards. When he discovered me and made a rapid retreat, though there being much fallen timber, I soon overtook him. First onset, I put one eye out with the spear. The second failed in the other eye. On the third, I pierced him to the heart and immediately dispatched him. 
You know, I can just imagine the verbiage between two Indians sitting up on the hill talking about a white man chasing a buffalo. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so here we are. we'll keep going here. Uh, a freak accident occurred that disabled pots for the spring hunt. And I can almost imagine forever. what this is. Okay. For reasons unknown, an oak ramrod was in the barrel of a loaded gun. Either someone was cleaning the gun or trying to remove a jammed ball with the rifle loaded. At any rate, it was stupid and careless, for the rifle was also primed and aimed in Daniel's direction. It fired and shot the wooden ramrod through both of his knees. With a bit of understatement, Daniel declared the accident brought me to the ground. No kidding. So a ramrod went through both knees. So somebody else was cleaning a gun, yeah. and the oak ramrod that they used on those old powder and ball muskets or yeah. whatever, it shot out of there and went through both knees? Both knees. This guy was not lucky. <laughs> he was not lucky. Yeah. Anyway, they floated him down to a fort, and uh, uh, anyway, they doctored him up and one thing or another. But here's kind of an interesting thing that happened. How do you get the ramrod out, ramrod out of both <laughs> knees? Pull real hard, I guess. <laughs> but you know, uh, at this fort... There was uh, an incident that he records about uh, a couple of guys, one named Fink, another guy named Carpenter. They had kind of a uh, uh, quarrel between themselves, Uh but they were back, and they were going to display their uh, sincerity and cement their friendship. Uh So Fink proposed they shoot the the whiskey-filled cup from each other's head, as in times past, Carpenter accepted, and they tossed a coin to see who would get the first shot. Oh, this doesn't sound good. Mike won, but after the cup was filled, Carpenter quietly told his friend Talbot that Mike planned to miss the cup and kill him. Well, he gamely awaited the shot. Mike leveled the rifle, made the most of his play. He paused and declared, Now hold your head steady, Carpenter, and don't spill the whiskey, as I shall want some presently. He sighted down the barrel, pulled the trigger, and shot, shot Carpenter right in the center of the forehead. Now, has it dawned on you that some of these guys weren't the brightest stars in the sky? <laughs> I guess. You know, he set his gun down, he blew the smoke from the barrel and said, Well, you spilt the whiskey. <laughs> well, that wasn't the end of the story. Uh, Talbot, who was Carpenter's fast friend, was convinced of Mike's treacherous intent and resolved upon a revenge whenever that opportunity came. Who decided who shot first, by the way? Well, they flipped a coin. Oh, I see. Yeah, so anyway, some months afterwards, uh, Mike uh, declared that he had killed Carpenter intentionally. Well, Talbot was standing there, instantly drew his pistol and uh, shot Mike through the heart. He fell dead, and that was the end of it. So both guys ended up dead. Oh. Well, so, you, you sure are cordial and warm uh, about yeah, it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, about three months after uh, uh, this Talbot guy was uh, in a battle called the Battle with the Arikara, and he Arikara. Ca- Arikara, I'm sorry. Yeah. He came out of the battle unharmed, but about 10 days later, while attempting to swim the Teton River, he drowned. So here's a guy that was in a big battle, one of the biggest, <laughs> survives, and then he drowns trying to swim the river. Can you swim? <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, anyway. Well, like I say... Uh, what happened to Potts? Well, he was back at the fort still uh, uh, kind of healing up from his... Oh, from the ramrod. From the ramrod. That had his knees nailed together. Right. Knock yeah. need. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, back then, as you mentioned, horse flesh was kind of scarce. And uh, anyway, this General Major Ashley uh, had tamed some trading with the Sioux or the Arikara. Uh, anyway, they, uh, this is where this uh, battle occurred. And Ashley was cautious in the trading on a, and he did the trading on a sandbar in the river. 
uh, kind of setting himself away from the tr- from the uh, Indians. Mm. So the business went okay the first day, but that was the end of it. On the second day, an argument broke out when Ashley refused to exchange guns and ammunition for horses. And then there was a guy named Aaron Stevens who was caught and killed during the middle of the night. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's all I'll say about that. Mm. He happened. Mm. Uh, I, there's a little inference there. There could be. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> anyway, it happened in the middle of the night. And one of these two incidents developed an explosive tension where it brought really one of the worst massacres in the fur trade era. Really? Yeah. And at daybreak, uh, any question about their goodwill was removed when one of the Arikaras drew close enough to yell out a trade offer. Well, uh, they wanted to exchange Aaron Stevens' body for a horse. Mm-hmm. And the, well, what a trade. Yeah. The Arikara, they were, you know, they were always feisty, and now their appetite was whetted, and they were set for war. Yeah, we've got two minutes left. Okay. Well, they refused to trade. Uh, things got bad. Lightning storm came up. Uh, they were still out in the middle of the river. Um, and I'm just going to quote from, from uh, one of the trappers. He said, you will easily perceive that we had little else to do than to stand on a sandbar and be shot at. There being seven or 800 guns in the village, and we having the day previously furnished them with an abundance of powder and ball. And they were standing there on yeah. a sandbar, and 800 guns missed them? Well, they were shooting. No, they, there was quite a few got killed. But oh. he said, we made a breastwork of our horses, they nearly all being killed. Oh, my. And anyway, that kind of was... And what happened to pots, though? Tell me real quick. Okay. Back in those days, there was a saying, GTT. Yeah. If somebody disappeared... Gone to Texas. Uh-huh. Well, that's the only thing we know is that Potts uh, disappeared, whether he drowned, whether we don't know what happened. Uh, but he Gone just, to Texas. He, he gone to Texas. Uh, but he did leave all these letters that, uh, you know, the, that were found years and years later. Okay. That, uh, so. Well, I'm sure glad you shared that with us about old Potts. He, he was kind of an a unlucky guy. He was. Yeah. You know, interesting. Yeah. But he walked funny for many years with that, a uh, with that old piece of wood between his knees there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, Doc, good job. Thank you. What, um, now, your homework assignment for next week is, how did the early settlers and fur trappers tell the tribes apart? Okay, I'll work on that one. <laughs> okay, I promise. Okay. <laughs> Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.